Section 9 of Dogmatic Theology, Soteriology, by William G. T. Shedd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Justification Justification is one of the most important doctrines in the Christian system. It supposes faith, and faith supposes regeneration. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. 1 John 5, 1 I will put my law in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts, for I will forgive their iniquity, and will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31, 33-34 This order is given in the larger catechism, question 67. The mind being enlightened, and the will being renewed, the person is enabled to accept Christ as offered in the gospel. Faith unites with Christ, and union with Christ results in justification. This is defined in the Shorter Catechism, question 33, to be an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardoneth all our sins, and accepteth us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith. Acts 13.38-39 Through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Romans 3.23-24 All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 4.5 To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Romans 4.6-8 5, 17 19 8.30 1 Corinthians 1.30 Of God are ye in Christ Jesus, of whom is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 21, Ephesians 1, 7, 2, 8, Philippians 3, 9, Jeremiah 23, 6, Habakkuk 2, 4, The just, justified, shall live by his faith. The justification of a sinner is different from that of a righteous person. The former is unmerited, the latter is merited. The former is without good works, the latter is because of good works. The former is pardon of sin and accepting one as righteous when he is not. The latter is pronouncing one righteous because he is so. The former is complex, the latter is simple. The justification of the ungodly, Romans 4, 5, 5, 6, includes both pardon and acceptance. Either alone would be an incomplete justification of the ungodly. In the case of a sinner, the law requires satisfaction for past disobedience and also perfect obedience. When a criminal has suffered the penalty affixed to his crime, he has done a part, but not all that the law requires of him. He still owes a perfect obedience to the law in addition to the endurance of the penalty. The law does not say to the transgressor, if you will suffer the penalty, you need not render the obedience. But it says, you must both suffer the penalty and render the obedience. Sin is under a double obligation. Holiness is under only a single one. A guilty man owes both penalty and obedience. A holy angel owes only obedience. Consequently, the justification of a sinner must not only deliver him from the penalty due to disobedience, but provide for him an equivalent to personal obedience. Whoever justifies the ungodly must lay a ground both for his delivery from hell and his entrance into heaven. In order to place a transgressor in a situation in which he is vikeos, or right in every respect before the law, it is necessary to fulfill the law for him, both as penalty and precept. Hence the justification of a sinner comprises not only pardon, but a title to the reward of the righteous. 
The former is specially related to Christ's passive righteousness, the latter to his active. Christ's expiatory suffering delivers the believing sinner from the punishment which the law threatens, and Christ's perfect obedience establishes for him a right to the reward which the law promises. The right and title in both cases rest upon Christ's vicarious agency. Because his divine substitute has suffered for him, the believer obtains release from a punishment which he merits, and because his divine substitute has obeyed for him, the believer obtains a reward which he does not merit. The meaning of the term justify must be determined by its scripture use and connection, and not by the etymology merely. It may have two meanings, like glorify and sanctify. To glorify God and to glorify the body are different significations of the word. The one signifies to declare to be glorious, the other to make glorious. The clause, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, employs the term sanctify differently from the clause, ye are sanctified. Similarly, to justify might mean to make just, justum facere, as well as to pronounce just, but in scripture it never means to sanctify or make inwardly holy. In the New Testament, the verb dikeo signifies a to pronounce or declare to be just, Luke 7.29, and the publicans justified God, Romans 3.4, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings, b to acquit from condemnation, Acts 13.39, justified from all things from which ye could not be justified in the law of Moses. Romans 4, 5-7, 5-1 and 9, 8-30-33, 1 Corinthians 6-11, Galatians 2-16, 3-11. That dikeo does not mean sanctifying or making just is proved by its antithesis to condemning, Deuteronomy 25.1, Proverbs 17.15, Isaiah 5.23, 2 Chronicles 18.6 and 7, and by its equivalents, imputing righteousness and covering sin, Romans 4.3.6-8, 2 Corinthians 5.19 and 21. In order to be justified or pronounced righteous, a person must possess a righteousness, the gersune, upon the grounds of which the verdict is pronounced. There are two kinds of righteousness upon the ground of which a person might be justified before the divine law. A. Legal righteousness, or that of the covenant of works. This is perfect personal conformity to the law. Romans 10.5 Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which perfectly doeth those things shall live by them. A holy being is justified by this kind of righteousness. A sinner cannot be pronounced righteous upon the ground of legal righteousness or perfect obedience, because he has not rendered it. Romans 3.20 By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. Romans 3.10 There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 Acts 13.39 Galatians 2.16 The impossibility of man's being justified by legal righteousness is relative, not absolute. If he had rendered perfect obedience, he would be pronounced just upon this ground. The doers of the law shall be justified, Romans 2.13. b. Gratuitous or evangelical righteousness, or that of the covenant of grace. This is technically denominated the righteousness of God. Matthew 6.33, Romans 1.17, 3.5, 21.22, 25.26, 10.3, 2 Corinthians 5.21, Philippians 3.9, 2 Peter 1.1. The Old Testament teaches it. The Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 23.6, 33.16. 
It is so denominated to distinguish it from the ordinary ethical or legal righteousness, which is the righteousness of man. In Romans 10.3, this latter is called Ivian Degiosunen, and in Philippians 3.9, Emen Degiosunen. If man should perfectly obey the law, the righteousness would be the result of his own agency. It would be his own righteousness. But the righteousness of God is the result of God's agency solely. Hence, it is described, Romans 4.6, as choris ergon, supply anthropo, choris ergon. Man is not the author of it in any sense whatever. The righteousness of God is the active and passive obedience of incarnate God. It is Christ's vicarious suffering of the penalty and vicarious obedience of the precept of the law which man has transgressed. It is Christ's atoning for man's sin and acquiring a title for him to eternal life. It is gratuitous righteousness because it is something given to man outright without any compensation or equivalent being required from him in return. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat, yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price, Isaiah 55.1. Being justified gratuitously, Dorian, by his grace, Romans 3.24. Since this evangelical righteousness of God is not inherent and personal to man like the legal or ethical righteousness of the law, it has to be imputed to him. Romans 4.6. David describeth the blessedness of the man to whom God imputeth righteousness, Romans 4, 9 and 10. Christ's atoning death for sin is not the sinner's atoning death for sin, but God imputes it to him, that is, he calls or reckons it his. Christ's perfect obedience, which merits eternal life, is not the sinner's perfect obedience, but God imputes it to him. He calls or reckons it his. Genesis 15, 6. Romans 4, 3 and 5. Abraham believed God and it was counted. Elohiste to him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. James 2.23 Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. We have just observed that in order that a person may be pronounced just, there must be a reason or ground for the verdict. Justification cannot be groundless and without a reason. The righteousness of God is the ground or basis upon which a believing sinner is pronounced to be righteous. Because Christ has suffered the penalty for him, he is pronounced righteous before the law in respect to its penalty and is entitled to release from punishment. Because Christ has perfectly obeyed the law for him, he is pronounced righteous before the law in respect to its precept and is entitled to the reward promised to perfect obedience. To pardon a believer and accept him, as if he had rendered the sinless obedience which entitles to eternal reward, is to impute the righteousness of God to him. The following particulars in connection with the justification of a sinner are to be noted. 1. Faith is the instrumental, not the procuring or meritorious cause of his justification. God justifieth not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ. Westminster Confession, 11.1. The reasons are, a. Because faith is an internal act or work of man. If the sinner's act of faith merited the pardon of his sin and earned for him a title to life, he would be pronounced righteous because of his own righteousness and not because of God's righteousness. Faith is denominated a work. John 6.29. This is the work of God that ye believe. 
it is the activity of the man, like hope and charity, and can no more be meritorious of reward or atoning for disobedience than these acts can be. In a right conception, fides est opus, if I believe a thing, because I am commanded, this is opus. Footnote. For the Tridentine view of justification adopted partially by a Protestant, see Jeremy Taylor's sermon, Faith Working by Love. Coleridge refers to this defect in Jeremy Taylor, Works 5195, yet in an earlier period in his life he fell into the same error himself. See the Friend, Works 2288, editor Harper. End footnote. Selden, Table Talk b. Because, as an inward act of the believer, faith is the gift of God, being wrought within him by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2.8, Philippians 1.29. But a divine gift cannot be used as if it were a human product, and made the ground of pardon and eternal reward. A debt to God cannot be paid by man out of God's purse, though it can be so paid by God himself. c. Because the believer's faith is an imperfect act. As such, it cannot be either atoning or meritorious. D. Because faith is not of the nature of suffering, and consequently cannot be of the nature of an atonement. The believing sinner is justified by faith only instrumentally, as he lives by eating only instrumentally. Eating is the particular act by which he receives and appropriates food. Strictly speaking, he lives by bread alone, not by eating or the act of masticating. And, strictly speaking, the sinner is justified by Christ's sacrifice alone, not by his act of believing in it. 2. The justification of a sinner is solely by Christ's satisfaction. No man may look at his own graces as a part of his legal righteousness in conjunction with Christ's righteousness as the other part. We must go wholly out of ourselves and deny and disclaim all such righteousness of our own. Baxter, Spiritual Peace and Comfort Bacon's edition, 1, 2, 7, 3. Justification does not depend partly upon the merit of Christ's work and partly upon that of the believer. The Tridentine theory is heretical at this point, because it makes the believer's justification to rest upon Christ's satisfaction in combination with inward sanctification and outward works. Scripture explicitly teaches that justification is by faith alone, not by faith and works combined. A man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law, Romans 3.28. Paul's faith alone, in this passage, must not be confounded with James's faith that is alone, James 2.17. The latter is spurious faith and produces no works, or dead faith. 3. The justification of a sinner is instantaneous and complete. It is a single act of God which sets the believer in a justified state or condition, Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is he that condemneth? John 5, 24. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation. 4. The justification of a sinner is an all-comprehending act of God. All the sins of a believer, past, present and future, are pardoned when he is justified. The sum total of his sin, all of which is before the divine eye at the instant when God pronounces him a justified person, is blotted out or covered over by one act of God. Consequently, there is no repetition in the divine mind of the act of justification, as there is no repetition of the atoning death of Christ upon which it rests. 
Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands that he should offer himself often, for then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as he was once offered to bear the sins of many unto them that look for him, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. For by one offering hath he perfected forever them that are sanctified. Hebrews 9, 24-28, 10-14 While, however, there is no repetition of the divine act of justification, yet the consequences of it in the soul of the believer are consecutive. In the believer's experience, God is continually forgiving his sins. The divine mercy is constantly absolving us by a perpetual remission of our sins. Calvin Institutes 3, 14, 10 the one eternal act of justification is executed successively in time, as the divine decree is. God doth from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. Nevertheless, they are not consciously justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. Westminster Confession 11.4 When a justified man commits sin, though his sin deserves eternal death, yet he is not exposed to eternal death as an unbeliever is and as he himself was prior to justification. But he experiences the withdrawal of the divine favour and God's paternal chastisement. This may be very severe and painful, and perhaps sometimes in the believer's experience may be almost equal to the distress of the unpardoned. David's experience during his backslidings was fearful in the extreme. Psalm 116.3 The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of hell got hold of me. Psalm 32.4 Day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Psalm 42.7 All thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. Here in this life the believer oftentimes suffers more than the unbeliever does. God deals with the former as with a son and causes him great mental distress for his soul's good. He deals with the latter as with a bastard and not a son. Hebrews 12.8 Lazarus in this life suffered more than Dives did. At the same time, the true believer, under all this experience, is really, and in the eye of God, a justified and forgiven man. The believer himself may be in great doubt upon this point, and sometimes may be on the brink of despair, but he is not cast off by God. David himself, after those dreadful passages in his experience, is enabled to hope in the divine pity. He never falls into the absolute despair of the lost. Psalm 71.3 Thou hast given commandment to save me. Psalm 42.5 Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Some writers in this reference distinguish between actual and declarative justification. Cunningham and Buchanan make this distinction. Actual justification is the act in the divine mind. Declarative justification is the announcement of the divine act in the consciousness of the believer. The believer's experience has its fluctuations and varieties, but the act of God is one and immutable. A person may be actually justified with little or even no confident and joyful sense of it in some chapters of his experience. Yet a justified man will not absolutely lose the hope of justification and have the experience of blaspheming despair. 5. The justification of a sinner includes a title to eternal life as well as deliverance from condemnation. This is denoted by the clause accepting as righteous in the Westminster definition. Eternal life as a reward rests upon perfect obedience of the law. Had man rendered this obedience, he could claim the reward. He has not rendered it and hence cannot claim it. Yet he must get a title to it, 
or he can never enjoy it. The rewards of eternity must rest upon some good basis and reason, they cannot be bestowed groundlessly. Christ, the God-man, has perfectly obeyed the law. God gratuitously, the rean, choris ergon, imputes this obedience to the believer, and the believer now has a right and title to the eternal life and blessedness founded upon Christ's theanthropic obedience. This is the second part of justification, the first part being the right and title to exemption from the penalty of the law founded upon Christ's atoning sacrifice. Justification thus includes the imputation of Christ's obedience as well as of his suffering, of both his active and his passive righteousness. Piscator, Tillotson, Wesley, and Emmons denied the imputation of Christ's active obedience, contending that justification is pardon alone without acceptance or title to life. They maintain that after the pardon of the believer's sin on the ground of Christ's passive obedience, sanctification by the Holy Spirit ensues, and this earns the title to eternal life. The objections to this theory are the following. A. The obedience of the believer is imperfect, but eternal life is the recompense of perfect obedience. The believer cannot claim such an immense reward for such an inferior service. B. Even if after his regeneration the believer's obedience were perfect and sinless, he has been disobedient previously, but eternal life is promised only to a perfect obedience from the beginning of man's existence to the end of it. For these two reasons, the believer cannot establish a valid title to an infinite and eternal reward upon the ground of his imperfect and halting service of God here in this life. He must therefore found it upon the perfect obedience of his Redeemer and expect entrance into heaven because his substitute has obeyed for him, even as he expects to escape retribution because his substitute has suffered for him. The reason why the believer must press forward after perfect sanctification is that he may be fit for heaven, not that he may merit heaven. Sinless perfection in the next life is not the ground and reason of the believer's future reward, but the necessary condition of his future blessedness. If there be remaining sin, there must be, so far, unhappiness. Passages of Scripture that prove the imputation of Christ's active obedience are the following. Romans 5.19, through the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This righteousness is complete and therefore includes a title to the reward of righteousness. Colossians 2.10, ye are complete in him. Ephesians 1.6, he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence. The boldness and confidence imply that there is no deficiency in the justification effected for the believer by Christ. But if he were resting his title to eternal life upon his own character and works, he could be neither bold nor confident in the day of judgment. 1 John 4.17 John 3.16 Whosoever believeth shall not perish, this is pardon, but shall have eternal life, this is acceptance as righteous. It is objected that the believer is represented as being rewarded for his works and in proportion to his works in the last day. The reply is, A. The reward of the last day is gracious, resulting from a covenant and promise on the part of God. It is the recompense of a parent to a child, not the payment of a debtor to a creditor. God is not under an absolute indebtedness to the believer, founded on an independent agency of the believer, but only a relative obligation established by himself and depending upon his assistance and support in the performance of the service. This is proved by the fact that the reward of a Christian is called an inheritance. 
Matthew 25.34, Acts 20.32, Galatians 3.18, Ephesians 5.5, Colossians 1.12. The believer's reward is like a child's portion under his father's will. This is not wages and recompense in the strict sense, and yet it is relatively a reward for filial obedience. If an angel under the legal covenant fails to keep the law in a single instance, he gets no reward. A redeemed man under the evangelical covenant, though he often fails, yet gets his reward. God graciously compensates the believer in Christ because he is fatherly and compassionate towards his child, and not because the reward has been completely earned and is strictly due upon the principle of abstract justice. Where remission of sins, says Calvin, has been previously received, the good works which follow are estimated by God far beyond their intrinsic merit, for all their imperfections are covered by the perfection of Christ, and all their blemishes are removed by his purity. Now, if any one urge as an objection to the righteousness of faith that there is a righteousness of works, I will ask him whether a man is to be reputed righteous on account of one or two holy actions, while in all the other actions of his life he is a transgressor of the law. This would be too absurd to be pretended. I will then ask him if a man is to be reputed righteous on account of many good works, while he is found guilty of any instance of transgression. This, likewise, my opponent will not presume to maintain in opposition to the law which pronounces a curse upon those who do not fulfill every one of its precepts. I will then further inquire if there is any work of man which does not deserve the charge of impurity or imperfection. Thus he will be compelled to concede that there is not an absolutely good work to be found in man that deserves the name of righteousness in the strict sense. Eternal life is called a gift in Romans 6.23, while eternal death is called wages. Again, the address of the judge in the last day to those who receive the reward of obedience is, Come ye blessed. The reward is also a blessing. This would not be the language of a debtor who is discharging strict indebtedness to his creditors. The redeemed also, when receiving their reward, disclaim absolute merit. When saw we thee, and hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? b. The object in considering the works of men in the final judgment is to evince the genuineness of faith in Christ, and discriminate true from false believers, not to show that man's works merit pardon and eternal life. Those who have done good works are described as humble and surprised that they receive such an immense recompense for their poor service, while those who have not done good works are described as self-righteous and proud and surprised they are punished and not rewarded. Matthew 7.22, Many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Matthew 25.44, then those on the left hand shall answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee, and hungered, or athirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee. The parable of the labourers, all of whom received the same wages, though hired at different times, proves that the rewards of the last day are not regulated by the exact value of the obedience rendered. Since the reward is the consequence of a promise, and not of an original obligation on the part of God, God may do as he will with his own. He never pays less than he has promised, thereby becoming himself a debtor. The Lord in the parable did not, but he may pay more than is due, and does pay more. An error of the perfectionist at this point is to be noticed. It is confounding imputed sanctification with inherent sanctification. Imputed sanctification is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ was of God made unto us sanctification. 
Inherent sanctification is inward holiness, as in 1 Corinthians 6.11, ye are sanctified. In the former sense, a believer's sanctification is instantaneous and perfect, but not in the latter. When God imputes Christ's active obedience to the believer, Christ is made sanctification to him. It is a complete sanctification that is imputed, and his title to life founded upon it is perfect. But his inward sanctification or cleansing from indwelling sin is still imperfect. Sanctification as imputed is a part of justification, but sanctification as infused and inherent is the antithesis to justification. The perfectionist overlooks this distinction. 6. Justification is a means to an end. Men are justified in order that they may be sanctified, not sanctified in order that they may be justified. Redemption does not stop with justification. Romans 8.30 Whom he justified, them he also glorified. John 8.11 Neither do I condemn thee, i.e. I pardon thee. Go and sin no more. Pardon is in order to future resistance and victory over sin. The sense of forgiveness is accompanied with a hatred of sin and hunger after righteousness. If the latter be wanting, the former is spurious. An unpardoned man could not be sanctified because remorse and fear of retribution would prevent struggle with sin. David prays first for forgiveness in order that he may obey in future. Psalm 51.7 and 13 Purge, atone, me with hyssop. Hide thy face from my sins, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. End of section 9